Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. All right. Well, hey, I'd like to uh, uh, welcome everybody to an event we have here today at the Heritage Foundation uh, webinar here in the COVID pandemic era. So uh, I think we're all getting a little bit used to this. Uh, again, my name is Dakota Wood. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs within our uh, Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, we are delighted to have some great panelists today to talk about uh, a fairly dramatic restructuring, a redesign of the uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, Force Design 2030, uh, whether that seems to be a great idea and it's really needed or whether it's absolute madness and uh, consigns the uh, Marine Corps to uh, uh, kind of a sideline role. So we're going to get into all of that. Uh, really appreciate, again, everybody joining us today. We have an extraordinary number of attendees, and we really want your involvement on this. So we're going to try to make this fairly informal. Uh, we'll have some discussion up front uh, where my colleagues, uh, Mark Hansen and Frank Hoffman, if they would like to join me now uh, on screen, uh, we will be taking your questions about halfway into this program. So probably around uh, 1030 or thereabouts. And uh, if you uh, would like your name mentioned, please identify yourself and your affiliation in the uh, question block. and We'll get to that. If you would rather remain anonymous, that's fine as well. I'll just uh, kind of get the gist of your question out to our panelists. And we've already had some come in via email uh, prior to this event kicking off as well. So I'm going to spend just a minute or two going over some biographical information because it's just really relevant to what we're going on. We've got Mark Kansen on the screen there for the uh, Center for uh, International Strategic and International Studies, where he's been since uh, 2015. But his history with the Marine Corps, uh, 30 years, both in the active and reserve components, uh, operational uh, experiences stretching all the way back to Vietnam, Desert Storm, a couple of tours in Iraq. Uh, he's uh, been an adjunct faculty member with the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, graduated with honors, and then again with high honors from a couple of schools at the Harvard College, Harvard Business School. But really, uh, it's a lot of his time with the Office of Management and Budget, uh, where he dealt a lot with uh, issues on war funding and, and uh, procurement programs. So when we talk about these Marine Corps issues, you know, it's operational, academic, analytic, and even budgetary analysis sorts of experience and those insights that he's going to bring to this conversation. And then our great colleague, uh, Dr. Frank Hoffman, uh, currently with the National Defense University. Also, Frank goes back uh, uh, quite a ways, uh, came into the Marine Corps in the late 1970s, uh, from that time through the 80s and up into the early 90s in various uh, billets uh, within Headquarters Marine Corps and at Quantico, almost a decade down at the uh, Warfighting Lab, director of the Marine Corps Strategic Studies Group for two years. Uh, when I got to know him in 99, he had been appointed uh, by the Secretary of Defense to the U.S. National Security Commission for the 21st century. He was also a key member of the Strat Strategic Vision Group uh, which wrote a seminal paper, Marine Corps Vision and Strategy 2025. He served on the Defense Science Board, uh, has uh, degrees from the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, uh, graduate degrees from George Mason and the Naval War College, and got his PhD from King's College of London. So uh, again, it's a lot of backstory, but it tells you that these two gentlemen who have also written on this very topic, uh, either 
uh, a bit critical or a bit more supportive, but raising concerns uh, in both writing uh, uh, examples, uh, talking about what the Marine Corps is trying to do. And if there has been a previous history of adaptation, if we're becoming too specialized uh, in one way or the other with the, uh, with the Marine Corps, uh, I, I guess uh, just being very upfront about it, I'm a huge advocate. I think uh, what General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is trying to do is uh, absolutely needed, but one can also go too far on that pendulum swing and over-specialize or over-optimize. And in a flat budget environment or potentially decreasing budget environment, you could have situations where you just have to trade uh, proven capabilities for things that you think would be more relevant in the future. So with that is set up, and again, if you have questions, uh, type them into the block. But we're going to start with Mark Kansian, Colonel Kansian, and he's going to talk for uh, about five minutes or so about his perspective on this. And then we'll shift over to a Dr. Hoffman. He'll do about another five minutes or so uh, of his perspective. And then we'll have some back and forth, a very informal discussion to get to Q&A. So uh, over to you, Mark, and let's hear what you have to say. Thanks, Dakota. Well, let me start with my concerns about the restructuring, and then I'll get to the things that I really like about it. My chief concern is that this restructuring is focused on a single future conflict, uh, an island campaign in the Western Pacific against China. And that's indeed one possible uh, future conflict, but it's one of many possible conflicts. Robert Gates, when he was Secretary of Defense, famously said that we had a perfect track record about predicting future conflicts, that we never got it right. Uh, I think that's a bit pessimistic. Uh, but of the major conflicts the Marine Corps has been involved with since, uh, since the Second World War, uh, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, um, Iraq 2003, Afghanistan, only Iraq in 2003 uh, was arguably foreseen. The rest have been totally unexpected. And I think the future will be like that. The next conflict will be someplace we are not expecting. I've heard the Marine Corps make the argument that if it prepares for a war with China, it will be uh, prepared for these other kinds of conflict. But history has been unkind to militaries to prepare for one kind of conflict and then ended up having to fight a different kind of conflict. We can look at our own army in the early 1960s. It uh, structured itself and trained for armored warfare on the plains of Europe. It was then called on to fight a jungle war in Southeast Asia and arguably did very poorly. Andy uh, Krabinevich wrote uh, eloquently about this. Uh, this restructured Marine Corps is not designed to be versatile. Uh, the Marine Corps likes to think of itself as a Swiss Army life, uh, Swiss Army knife, but this will be a Swiss Army knife uh, whose owner has ripped out a couple of blades because he doesn't think he's going to need them anymore. And a Smith's Swiss Army knife that's missing key functions is really just an ordinary jackknife. I've heard the Marine Corps argue that it can get these missing capabilities from other services, particularly from the Army, uh, but I think that's unlikely. The Army has not uh, programmed any tank or engineer or cannon artillery or fire support for the Marine Corps. If the Marine Corps wanted those assets, uh, the combatant commander would have to rip them away from the Army, which would engender uh, a bitter inter-service fight. I think that future combatant commanders will just opt to use army units because they bring a complete set of capabilities for a state-on-state -state close fight uh, without the inter-service conflict. The Marine Corps, with its lack of mobility and close and firepower, if it's used at all, will end up doing something like rear air security. But I don't want to be too negative. There are some things about this restructuring program that I think make a lot of sense. Uh, the first one is increasing the number of UAVs. Uh, even at the cost of reducing the number of manned aircraft, the Marine Corps has been far behind the other services uh, in fielding UAVs, even though it pioneered uh, the use of UAVs in the 1980s with Pioneer. Uh, 
Today, the Air Force has something like 280 armed uh, UAVs uh, and the Marine Corps has three. Uh, the plan, the restructuring fields, anti-ship long-range uh, precision missiles, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, in a conflict with China and elsewhere. Uh, it uh, uh, proposes building small amphibious ships. I think that also makes a lot of uh, sense in wartime. It distributes the risk and in peacetime, it allows uh, uh, Marine units to be in more places. One of the problems with the current MUSE is that they end up getting split up because COCOMs want to put them in so many different places, smaller inputs would allow you to do that. And finally, uh, the restructuring would bring back air defense and institute some cruise missile defense. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, those capabilities were taken out of the force in the Marine Corps and the Army uh, after the Cold War. That was the right thing to do then. It's now right to uh, bring those back. Um, I know that this restructuring is still a work in progress, so I think that there's opportunity to make uh, adjustments. Uh, if people take anything away from my remarks, is that the Marine Corps should adopt a hedging strategy, acknowledging the uh, uncertainty of the future and uh, the possibility that may be called on to fight conflicts that it doesn't currently foresee. Uh, this would involve retaining some heavy assets like tanks, uh, keeping more engineering assets and cannon artillery, and retaining more firepower in the infantry battalions. And some of this could be done in the reserves. Uh, which don't need to mirror exactly the active force. Other services use the reserves to complement the active force, not replicate it. I think the Marine Corps should take advantage of that. Uh, with that, I'll turn things back over to you, Dakota. All right, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, this hedging strategy uh, makes a lot of sense uh, in, in some regards. Uh, the only question I would have about it, and we'll get into the discussion uh, a bit later on that thing, is uh, sometimes you can have so small of a capability that it's hard to sustain, you know, with career pipelines and supply blocks and those sorts of things. So I'd like to expand on that a little bit more a bit later on. But over to uh, Frank and uh, Dr. Hoffman, uh, what's your uh, view on this particular issue? Oh, good morning. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more supportive, uh, but, uh, you know, so I'm still also cautious and I share a lot of concerns that, uh, that Mark has expressed. But let me accentuate uh, the things I like first, then I'll talk about my concerns. I, I see five or six big shifts here. I believe all these shifts are relevant to the strategic direction that the Secretary of Defense, both Mattis and Mr. Esper, Dr. Esper, have articulated uh, that they want the services to do. So um, I'd like to discuss those five or six thrust areas and, and how they're being operationalized. Uh, I like the change from close in and dumb rounds to longer range, some greater standoff and precision in the Marine Corps' uh, capability set. Uh, we've been getting that from aviation for a long period of time, but I think the, the missile capability provides a lot more range, a lot more versatility, and a lot more precision in the future than we've had in the past. Perhaps at a lighter weight, I'm not sure about the cost you know, per munition per se. The second shift is from a tactical combined arms force to a much more operationally oriented cross-domain or multi-domain capability. Uh, that's the thrust from the joint strategy. Uh, both on the air and the ground, and also in the information and EW component. Uh, some of that comes again from aviation. Some of that's going to come from ground forces. Uh, I think this makes the Marine Corps more versatile in island defense uh, and in offensive operations than it's been in the past. Like Mark, uh, I support the shift from some manned capabilities or an overemphasis on manned capabilities towards uh, unmanned assets. I think that's a shift uh, probably long overdue for the number of decades at the lab we've been playing with 
handheld, tactical, um, UAV. So this shift, I think, is uh, given the Marine Corps' two decades of experience with RPVs and UAS is probably long overdue. I actually think that the Marine Corps has not done enough, uh, particularly on the ground side, but even on the aviation side in, in meeting that shift. Uh, but I, I do applaud the shift that it has made so far. There's a degree of uh, quantity for quality shift that's not normally synonymous with Marine Corps, where both the Army and the Marine Corps, we like end strength, uh, personnel intensive capabilities. Uh, clearly, the Commandant's willing to trade off some end strength for modernization, a shift from capacity to capabilities for investment purposes. I think that shift is, was directed in the National Defense Strategy. So again, a shift that I think is necessary. There are educational and training components, particularly in the ground community that are long discussed down at Quantico for 15 years on distributed operations, strategic corporals and strategic sergeants, close quarter battle, lethality of our tactical units uh, that have been debated long enough I'm glad to see the Marine Corps moving forward and making those changes. And the fifth change is moving from a general purpose orientation to some strategic shaping. Uh, strategy is about choices. The NDS was clear on what those choices were. It directed some of these choices, some of these thrusts um, to be strategically oriented as a priority. Uh, there are risks when you make that kind of priority, but uh, and there are definitely risks in the shifts that have been approved, there would be more risk if the Commandant had embraced all the recommendations that have been given. So I think the Commandant was much more selective about the things to go forward in. It is a work in progress. I think he was appropriately cautious in some areas where the evidence did not back up some of the changes that he could have made. So I don't agree with all the changes. I would have retained some tubed artillery, perhaps uh, a little bit more than the Commandant went to. Um, but I, I do applaud uh, his courage. I applaud the analysis and the thinking that has gone into the into the process. Uh, the NDS directed change of scale and urgency. And from the other services, I haven't seen that uh, sense of urgency or any of the shifts yet. I've seen some excellent R&D programs in each of the services. Uh, everybody's looking in the long term with their R&D programs and looking at uh, capabilities they may need in the future. Uh, and those will pay off ultimately. Uh, but the Marine Corps is making the shifts I think it can and needs to make now uh, to free up the capital and to make the alterations for the 21st century. Now, very briefly on uh, some concerns. Some of these are uh, uh, in complete agreement with uh, with Marx. I'm not sure that the changes are complementary to the joint force. Uh, I'm not sure that I would like uh, some of these changes to be implemented without some consideration to what uh, missions or burdens we're placing on the Army, and if the Army's prepared or not prepared uh, to comp to work complementary with the Marine Corps, and then what what would those changes be in terms of training exercises or doctrine, uh, educational exchanges, maybe changes between 29 Palms and NTC uh, to work through those either redundancies or interdependencies that we have right now. Uh, I'm not sure this increases the joint force ability to create dilemmas to be unpredictable. Um, does this make us more deterring and unpredictable? Uh, I actually think there's a positive answer to that. But without a joint design and knowing what the Navy's doing to support these things, um, I'm, I'm unable to answer those questions, I think, to, definitively. And for our allies, I've been interacting now with uh, several European allies who have questions about whether this makes us more interoperable or less interoperable with them. I think after an exchange with the Marine Corps and myself, I think they came away uh, a little more comfortable with this. 
Uh, I think Mark has a great point on the risk mitigation and the, and the hedging from a total force perspective. I've been involved in a number of vision and force structure review groups. Uh, we did one in the early 1990s that had no reserve participation other than myself. And uh, I think we came away from that exercise understanding that we should not look at the Marine Corps in two stovepipes of active and reserve. So Mark's comments about uh, keeping some selective capabilities of risk mitigation in the reserves is certainly in the near to mid range, a very appropriate strategy to manage some of, some of the risks. And I'll, I'll save uh, the comments on versatility for our Q&A, but I definitely have some strong views on where versatility comes from. And it's not from a couple pieces of hardware like tube artillery. I, th I think there's more um, cultural aspects of the Marine Corps that, that enhance our uh, versatility. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Dakota. Frank, appreciate that. I mean, some great overviews from both of you. Uh, you know, we had a, uh, several questions that have come in already, so uh, I wasn't distracted necessarily, but trying to keep up with the things that come in. And a fundamental question, which I'm glad was asked, was what are the components of this reorganization? So, you know, we're rolling into something that we're familiar with. Uh, my presumption that people, because they were dialing in, understood what was going on. But the broad outlines of what General Berger is trying to do with the Marine Corps uh, is really a follow-on to what General Neller, his predecessor, uh, had concluded. And that was that the Marine Corps, as it is currently equipped and structured and postured, uh, just wasn't relevant to an evolving uh, battle space where you've got uh, more unmanned systems, where um, sensors have become so capable that your signature, you know, the footprint that you have physically, the energy that it's radiating electromagnetically and all these other sorts of things, the logistical requirements to move people and goods and materials around the battlefield, you have to really reduce that signature. And you can't mass because longer range, very accurate precision guided munitions uh, can find a target and hit the target with effect. So uh, both General Neller and now General Berger uh, really making the, in this into a reality is envisioning the Marine Corps that is uh, smaller units uh, across a more widely distributed uh, battle space. And you can think about the uh, Indo-Pacific region, a lot of archipelagic waters. Uh, can the Marine Corps operate at a lower signature, much more mobile, less logistics intensive or dependent, and do this in a way that enhances the projection of naval power? So for many years now, there's been this criticism that the Marine Corps has become a second land army. You know, sustained operations in Afghanistan and Iraq and really hadn't done much time at sea. So when we think about the projection of naval power, how do you get naval power close enough to the enemy? And if the pacing threat is China in a way that it, that it remains relevant, you know, if you're out thousands of miles, what's the point of having it? And so this reorganization effort is trying to develop new capabilities and organizational constructs that answer that big question, how to make the Marine Corps relevant in future battle by making it smaller, more distributed, lower signature, and have longer range of sorts of capabilities. So these things that uh, Mark and Frank have brought up about divesting uh, conventional tube artillery, limited range, can you replace that with longer range multi-launch rocket systems? Can you field boxed anti-ship cruise missiles that would pose a threat to, let's say, the PLAN, the Chinese Navy, in very contested waters. But how do you get that in there? Um, are tanks good in, in, a, in a, uh, a, a logistics um, denied sort of environment where you want to maintain mobility and yet you're saddled with this 80-ton main battle tank? 
Uh, tanks don't seem to do really well in island sorts of environments. They're much better for open terrain in Europe and in the Middle East, et cetera. But to Mark's point, uh, you can't predict where the next battle is going to be. So in lightening up, does the Marine Corps become so light or so optimized for a particular environment that it really isn't useful in the sorts of battle scenarios that it's seen in the past? And we had a question about the size of the Marine Corps. I think it's 185,000 uh, now. And so, it, again, in a fixed budget box, do you have to give up some things in order to create new capabilities? So that's kind of the basis for some of these things. And I'll just uh, talk about a uh, question came in. We went well, one year in since Force Design 2030 uh, was announced. Are we still on track? I think the, the Marine Corps is very much on track, but that's almost a controversial point. Is it moving too fast? And, uh, and for Mark in particular, a couple questions. Uh, if it's too focused on China with this reorganization, uh, pre-FD 2030, Force Design 2030, when it was a two-med construct and almost kind of a, a Korea scenario, would that have been relevant, you know, in a highly distributed, uh, PGM-intensive, high-sensory sort of thing? So it's almost like if the old core wasn't relevant, do you retain the old core or do you make these necessary changes? So these components of the reorganization, relevance in the modern battle space, the ranges involved, let's just kind of take those for a moment and to have two of you, uh, both of you comment on that, and then I'll get to some of the other questions. Okay, well, let me go ahead and start and say that it's not really an either or. Uh, in my remarks, I noted that there were four things I thought the Merkur was doing in this restructuring, which made a lot of sense, including the anti-ship missiles, uh, and the UAVs, the smaller amphibs. Uh, but my footstop is the Marine Corps should hedge against the possibility that the next war is not going to be an island campaign in the Western Pacific, but could be something uh, very different and should retain some capabilities so it could participate uh, in this other uh, conflict, which is much more uh, likely. Frank, anything uh, in addition to that? In particular, there was a couple of uh, questions that came in for you where you had mentioned uh, that there were a couple of items or a few items that General Berger decided not to adopt in terms of recommendations. So if he is going ahead, uh, divesting of tanks, uh, the last tanks have left uh, 29 Palms, as a matter of fact, and we've seen uh, tank and bridging units and other heavy armor sorts of capabilities, uh, you know, case up their colors and all that. Uh, what things did he not adopt? Uh, and was that smart or not? Has he not gone far enough or gone too far? So if you could uh, talk about that. Well, I'm probably not going to end up second-guessing the Commandant on, on some of the things he decided not to do. And most of those, I thought, were tactical in nature about the changes to the infantry organization, um, things about MOSs, things about that would affect training education. Um, I, I think the, the dramatic changes that we've been arguing about for 15 years and either in the Marine Corps Gazette or on the rocks were the things that uh, had been gained out. Uh, I'd like to address the larger versatility issue and the utility issue because I was where Mark was when I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. And when I listened to the presentation from some Marines uh, about the capability, I definitely walk away with this notion about the, the China application. And of course, I heard some of this when I was working in the Pentagon in 2017 and 2018 with respect to the national defense strategy. Uh, I think the versatility of the Marine Corps has been enhanced with the unmanned systems, with the rocketry, with the shifts in balance between ground and air on the qualitative side. 
not decreased. And But I did have this initial concern because it's the way it's presented uh, by the Marines in, in applying the capability mix, you know, in a, in a single briefing, they do tend to focus on the Asia Pacific. And the national defense strategy tells them to think in those terms. So I'm not surprised that they're trying to test that capability out. But at, uh, at NDU, my uh, colleague, TX Hamas, Dr. Hamas, who's also a retired Marine with 30 some years in the Corps, you know, we tabletopped the war games that we had directed, the war games we've done in the joint community. I looked at the two games I had done for the Department of the Navy. I also looked at the, the four war games we had done with the National Defense Strategy. And I tried to apply these capabilities uh, in Eastern Europe, in the Baltics, in Iran, uh, on a function by function capability list. And Dr. Hammes and I walked away with uh, a higher degree of confidence that the capability sets were applicable, uh, particularly with the ground changes. Um, so I walked away thinking that there, there was utility, it's not being strategically communicated, and that might be because the NDS tells them not to think about being a general purpose force. The NDS gives pretty generic guidance, in a sense, about what missions are the most important, what missions are less important, and directs the service chiefs to create capabilities that minimize risk in the priority missions over the secondary missions. The General Purpose Marine Corps accepts risks in all its missions if it uh, attempts to be useful across all the board with a Leatherman tool approach. You know, the blades in that Leatherman tool are not optimized for anything. Uh, the NDS direction is to optimize to some degree for the most priority missions and don't take risk in those tasks and take risk in other places that are secondary or tertiary. I, I think the Marine Corps has done that. To me, the Versatility of the Marine Corps comes from its air ground team construct, from its command and control capabilities, from its philosophy of maneuver warfare across different scenarios. It's in the leadership development and the education program down at Quantico. Um, you know, not in whether it has three versus five versus seven tube artillery batteries or whether it has, uh, you know, tanks or not. Uh, I would like to see some, you know, mitigation. Uh, inside the joint force design uh, to ensure that that's sound. And I do concur with Mark entirely on a, a total force perspective on uh, capturing that in a, in a strategic sense. But that also needs to be done between the, the joint world and the naval force design as well. I hope I answered the question indirectly. Uh, let, me, let, let, me, let me push back against my colleague a little uh, and, and note that if you took this Marine Corps and you um, uh, put it up against the kind of conflicts that we have had over the last 70 years, Korea, Vietnam, uh, Desert Storm, Iraq, it does very poorly. Uh, in fact, it would be irrelevant uh, in those kinds of uh, conflicts. So uh, I'm not sure what the wargaming shows, but I can say that against historical examples, this, this Marine Corps would not be uh, very relevant. The other thing is that I think culture will follow structure. Uh, that may take some time, but when you look at this new structure, the focus of the Marine Corps is now on the artillery and the aviation, not the infantry. The Marine Corps does not uh, fight the close and fight, does not locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. It locates and destroys the enemy with long-range fires. The focus of the infantry now is to protect the artillery. Very uh, defensive orientation, and I think over time, that will become part of the culture. It won't be happening in a year. Uh, but over time, you get a very different uh, culture. Now, nobody outside the Marine Corps cares about that. Uh, but inside the Marine Corps, I think it will, uh, again, over time, 
uh, uh, have quite an effect. Back to you, Dakota. Right. Yeah. So there is this issue, though, about uh, you know risk mitigation. I mean, you know, again, the Swiss Army knife analogy, which is a good one, uh, was very relevant in the 80s and the 90s and in the first decade of the 21st century uh, because of the nature of technology and what our most likely or the current opponents uh, actually had and brought to bear. Uh, but if we're, according to the National Defense Strategy, uh, and I agree with these, these uh, with the analysis of that, if we really have to do pick and choose, and uh, there is the potential for conflict uh, with a major power or even a middling power like in Iran uh, that has these advanced uh, technologies, uh, you, you just can't do things the same way today as you did them in the past. I mean, the, the tech with uh, artificial intelligence, giving you a better analysis of the battle space, global telecommunications, which are achievable by just about anybody, unmanned systems and robotics, directed energy, uh, all these sorts of things. It's hard to see how you would mass a unit. You know, the Ukrainians have experienced uh, massed fires from multiple launch rocket systems, you know, guided by unmanned systems with Russian and Russian-backed uh, separatists there in, in eastern Ukraine. And we're seeing these kinds of things play out in Syria and in other battle spaces. So, you know, does it come to a point where the technology available to more actors just demands that the forces you employ operate differently? And that what was very, very useful in Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, uh, you know, uh, the Gulf War One, right? Uh, that these uh, sorts of things, Operation Iraqi Freedom, there in two, uh, that they just aren't as relevant. And that, again, with limited assets, you really have to decide where you're going to take risk. And if you can take risk at grappling with an insurgency uh, or a terrorist organization so that you are more um, better, well, that you're better suited uh, to grapple with a, a mid to a high end power, and you can prove you have those capabilities, it actually enhances deterrence and it does this theater shaping you know, sort of thing, right? So uh, on the hedging strategy, if I'm gonna retain tanks in small numbers, I have to have a, uh, a manpower pyramid that allows people to be in that community for however long and still have the opportunity to train, to advance in rank. And it's hard to do that with these very, very small communities. You know, parts block, maintenance capabilities, you know, when do they exercise and all that. So it, it seems to me that Again, with increased uh, signature uh, problems, uh, with uh, battle occurring at longer ranges, if you are lighter and more distributable, uh, more uh, movement-oriented, all right, you have to, to, to get forces around even the Indo-Pacific theater, right, that those sorts of new capabilities would be applicable and would be relevant on any battlefield, whether it was in the Middle East or Europe or Africa or Latin America, right? So I think these new capabilities are transferable. And, and again, a lot of the questions coming in um, has to do with this. You know, how does this reorganization help compete against big actors like China or Russia? Um, what attributes would be realistic in a hedging strategy, given these kind of organizational you know, dynamics uh, that would be in play? Uh, Philip Athey from the Marine Corps Times asked specifically, in kind of tuning against the pacing threat of China, wouldn't this also be relevant against a North Korea or an Iranian scenario? So, I mean, there is this kind of holistic thing, and I don't want to forget our good friend George Nicholson, who was always focused on special operations, 
and you know special purpose MAGTAP crisis response, the role of MARSOC, uh, you know dedicated marine air and these sorts of things in these sorts of environments. We're talking smaller units, uh, low signature, and yet having the ability to get in and actually affect something on the battlefield. So I think there is a theme going on here about whether old Marine Corps is relevant in a new battle space sort of environment. And again, resource constrained, don't you have to start giving up some things and accepting risk in some areas so that you can reapply those, those assets, which are always limited, in ways that would be more relevant in, in a modern or future battlefield? Okay, well, let me respond. I mean, first, we already have a SOCOM, so we don't need a second SOCOM in the Marine Corps. Uh, the Marine Corps had that choice. It did not take it. So we don't need to replicate those capabilities uh, in the Marine Corps. And the second thing is I would push back on some of your um, uh, concept here and looking at Korea, for instance, Korea would be a close in fight. Uh, it's not long range precision fight. It's gonna be an infantry fight up and down the mountains. Uh, it's gonna call for a lot of firepower uh, and the Marine Corps would be quite irrelevant in that kind of fight. You look at uh, Iran, hard to say, You know, it depends on what kind of a fight that would that would be. Uh, you know, the concept of these small um, bubbles of, of Marines with uh, long-range precision fires is a very interesting one, but it's very unproven whether the Marine Corps can keep these sustained, uh, whether they can actually move around since they have no um, uh, organic transportation, whether they can survive given the lack of firepower, of close-in firepower. Uh, the Marine Corps is betting on an unproven uh, uh, operational concept, and again, I would uh, hedge, not not uh, eliminate those kind of capabilities. As I said, some of them are, I think are very sensible, particularly the UAVs that should make TX Hamas happy. Um, but to hedge against the possibility either that the operational concept uh, is not supportable uh, or that the particular kind of conflict is not what they're envisioning. Well, just real quick before Frank chimes in, I mean, I think both of you had mentioned, but Frank in particular, that, that I know the Marine Corps has done a lot of gaming, uh, you know, hundreds of iterations on this stuff that has informed the direction uh, that, that General Berger is trying to take the service. So it's not like they haven't explored these things. Now, they haven't been very forthcoming in terms of, like Frank was talking about, the messaging on this thing. You know, how well does this play with the joint force? Uh, is it complementary to what the Army may or may not have? Uh, does it really become an aviation, long-range fire-centric sort of Marine Corps and not so relevant in other sorts of things? Uh, but is the close-in fight uh, really a relevant future scenario? And, and so, again, you know, I know they're at Quantico. Uh, they've gone through multiple iterations of various scenarios to see what kind of force construct would work. What I've been told is that this force design effort is the result of that analysis, but they really haven't been sharing the details of that analysis, uh, probably for operational security reasons. I don't know that to be the case, but Frank, you might have some additional insight on that. Yeah, well, after I uh, got in exchange with the Commandant and the Economist, uh, you know, some people did reach out to me and highlight what they had done intellectually. Uh, again, I don't think that was as detailed, I, I literally did have to do my own work. Dr. Hammes and I did uh, review the games we've done over the last two years. And I looked at the games I had done for General Conway and the games I had done for the Department of the Navy uh, in the Middle East. I also looked at the games we had done uh, organized by DOD, particularly the Ukrainian scenarios. Uh, and I think Dakota's picked up some of the trends on some of the things that we would be keeping would be outranged and outgunned. And some of the things we've acquired have given us signature 
air defense, and standoff capabilities that we're lacking. So uh, the Korea scenario is one that's interesting. Uh, not sure that that's one that's necessary for the Marine Corps in terms of slogging up through the mountains, a la 1950, uh, if that's the role for the Marine Corps in the 21st century. I would like to see our amphibious capabilities retained. That doesn't come across in some of the presentations about littoral maneuver in the 21st century and how we may do that. Uh, but I do think even in the Korean scenario, uh, when thinking about littoral maneuver, not just advanced expeditionary bases, uh, I can find utility for the Marine Corps with greater speed and greater agility on the challenges we're going to have when we're trying to maneuver against a power that might be a nuclear armed state. So I don't see it being the, the manpower slog, and I don't see us desiring in creating a force design based around you know, 1951 uh, again. But in the South Asia, uh, in the North uh, Europe and the Baltic scenario, in the inside and outside the Gulf scenarios that I've done games on uh, for the Marine Corps, and in the Eastern European scenarios, I see a lot of utility uh, that's enhanced rather than retarded. Uh, but again, that does put burdens on the Army, and you do have to rationalize that from a joint force design perspective. And I haven't seen the joint force weigh in from a, the, a joint force design perspective to ensure that the risks are acceptable. Yeah, let me uh, uh, point out first, as you, you, as Dakota said, that we haven't seen what the wargaming is. So the Marine Corps says it's done a lot of wargaming, and I believe that they have. Uh, but we don't know what that looks like. I would point out that the French thoroughly wargamed the Maginot Line, and look where it got them. Uh, because the problem is the assumptions that you use. And of course, if the Marine Corps uh, argues that, yes, it could participate in a European or Korean scenario, if the Army gives it an artillery brigade and uh, a tank brigade, um, that may be true, but the Army has to agree to it, as Frank, Frank says. Um, uh, so uh, I think we need to see some of the, the details on the war gaming before we can, you know, you know I, I think be comfortable that uh, this new design is in fact uh, applicable uh, broadly. I, I would also make the point that if the Marine Corps is going to leave some of these future conflicts to the army, like it's going to say, essentially, we're not gonna do Korea. We don't do up and down the mountains, that's the army. Um, I mean, that's perfectly fair, but you don't need 170,000, 180,000 uh, Marine Marine Corps to do that. I mean, you're talking about 80, 100,000 for a much more specialized, narrow uh, 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 focus. So uh, yes, we don't want to be the second land army. Uh, the Marine Corps has done that uh, in the past. And I think that's really the rationale why the Marine Corps is the size that it is, to be able to do that if it has to. Over to you, Dakota. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Frank. But I just one point on the factual basis, we're still talking about a Marine Corps of a, a sufficient size with 18 infantry battalions and its air ground mix. The, the notion of small, specialized, narrow, it's just something to, to, to be refuted immediately on a factual basis. If the Marine Corps was accepting, you know, nine distributed ops battalions, four urban battalions, three special ops battalion, and three security force assistance battalions, you know, distributing itself among a lot of specialized tasks, I'd probably join Mark in uh, even more concerns, but it's still, I still see an air ground force. I don't see the shock power of tanks in that, but I do see the shock power of rocketry that's taking out from 20 kilometers to 40 kilometers out to 70 kilometers uh, and doing a lot of things on that. And then 
the Maginot Line uh, mythology is something, again, to push back. The, the French did a wonderful job uh, wargaming the Maginot Line, and it worked perfectly for what it was supposed to do. Uh, nobody penetrated the Maginot Line. What they failed in their war games was uh, the Belgian planes and, and combined arms warfare uh, and didn't have the leadership. They had the doctrine, more or less, didn't have the op tempo. Uh, but there's a lot of capabilities they created, the airplane, the tank, it's pulling it all together uh, from a joint force design perspective. Reinforcing my point is, you know, we can't necessarily embrace what the Marine Corps is leaning forward into, uh, but until we see a joint force design and we see these war games. But the war games have been done. You know, I'm satisfied that they were done and that there's a rationale for this as, as directed in the NDS. But there is this larger risk of communicating that uh, in an unclassified format, again, which are, where I'm restricted, uh, working for the government right now and participating in these things is how one can articulate that. Um, but I, I think there's enough there. There's enough there in the Commandant's report to tease this out and, and try to understand it. Uh, but the validity of those games and how they match up with uh, the, the strategy and the joint force design is, in, is important. And the Marine Corps has not been able to articulate that in its strategic communications heretofore. So it seems to me that, that there is a lot of common uh, analysis across the services, talking about range, precision, sensors, signature, uh, trying to uh, extricate themselves from uh, a critical dependence on a secured logistical supply lines. I mean, all those sorts of things, right? Uh, my criticism of a lot of service efforts is believing in a future hype and letting go of something that's proven before the future thing has actually been proven, right? So it's it's really taking on a lot of risk. What it, se it seems to me what the Marine Corps is doing is, is really embracing a lot of these new technologies, a lot of prototyping, experimentation, and, and it's gonna be a 10-year road march. But to free up resources, they have to let go of some things that other services do have, like heavy armor, which is a real specialty of the, uh, of the Army. Uh, and being uh, kind of light and nimble, which the Marine Corps has always kind of prized themselves for being, you know, long range raid sorts of forces, special purpose MAGTAFs, uh, MV-22 supported, uh, you know, reinforcement sorts of missions. I mean, it is a light infantry sort of world. Now the equipment that that light infantry world brings with it, are they boxed uh, air defense, uh, boxed anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, is it a sensor picket, you know, that uh, uh, can better see what an enemy is doing movement-wise and then share that situational awareness with a larger naval or joint force? It, I think that's where they're heading, and I just see that that's applicable across many different battlefields and not necessarily China itself. But there are implications for, and these are some questions that have come in, the maritime preposition force, a lot of invested and uh, these ships to carry a lot of gear, but you require a secure force to get it in. Uh, logistical challenges that have to be overcome. Uh, the, uh, the idea of a Marine littoral regiment, uh, which would be a new organizational construct that kind of embodies all these sorts of things, right? Um, if the fight is not a close-in fight, uh, concerned by, uh, by Mark here, then how does this affect Marine Corps culture, right? I mean, what is it the central ethos of a Marine, is it I draw my bayonet and attack the enemy over the berm, or is it this kind of very uh, Al Gray, expeditionary, uh, you know, uh, General Krulak, 
three block war sort of thing where I embrace the situation that I'm presented and then I modify my activities and organizational designs to best meet whatever that future uh, calls for. And, and I like how Frank uh, closed one of his writings is that is it first to fight or is it first to adapt? Right. So and, and what risk are you willing to run? To make that adaptation. So again, just some kind of general commentary, and, and I think Mark, you're poised to to jump yeah, in. On. Well, let, let me make uh, uh, two points. First, this is not a three-block war. Marine Corps. The Marine Corps says they're not going to do the three-block war. Right. I mean, it's you know that, that you know that is a relic of the past. We don't do that anymore. Right. You know, we we are doing long-range precision strike against China. But let me raise a, a bureaucratic issue that hasn't come up yet because you talked about the need for a 10-year investment program. And, and this is you know, a 10-year program, and that's fair enough. You know, the bureaucratic problem is the Marine Corps has put on the table a bunch of cuts. And the next administration may just take those cuts and say, thank you very much. Uh, the, all the services need to get smaller. Uh, we accept your cuts. Uh, and then the Marine Corps doesn't have the money to uh, reinvest. Uh, and if that happens, and I think that's quite likely, uh, that uh, the future is going to be fiscally constrained, and all the services are going to be pressed uh, to uh, uh, to cut back, then the money for the investments is not going to be there. So the Marine Corps will have the, the worst of both worlds. O over to you, Frank. Well, I mean, this uh, notion of a programmatic uh, thing that I think complacency and status quo and hanging on to 1950 constructs is just as risky in a, in a budget cut. Uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee was very aggressive in asking a series of questions in the NDA in 2018, uh, asking about roles and missions directed at the Marine Corps. So it was very strong language, uh, and the authors of that have continued, you know, criticisms of the overinvestment in capabilities that they didn't see a lot of utility in, um, particularly the amphibious force as currently constructed. We've been debating this since about 10 years now on amphibious assault in the 21st century. Uh, I like one of Mark's concepts uh, about culture. Uh, I do see a challenge for the Marine Corps in the sense of, particularly if you only focus on the advanced expeditionary base, you know, the missile earring part, which I, I still see as a component and a shift that is more about ground warfare than it is uh, anti-ship operations in the Pacific. But it, to me, it goes both. But it's, it's being sold on the utility in the Pacific. But the Marine Corps is kind of, uh, challenging its culture in the sense of going from a static or a, a, a tactical combined arms force, uh, very infantry intensive, low tech attack kinetically uh, kind of a concept uh, into something I think is uh, a little more operational. Uh, the Marine Corps tries to sell the mobility aspect, but I, I worry about just implanting the Marine Corps in a bunch of islands as a, uh, you know, a wake defense battalion kind of construct where the missile earring becomes the primary focus over time. But that's not the Marine Corps I know, and I'm not sure that the Marine Corps' culture can accept uh, that, you know, static non-maneuver kind of culture very much. Uh, so when I look at the rest of the force structure, I still see the air ground team. I still see the maneuver warfare philosophy. I just see it applied over, you know, more, uh, more scenarios. Uh, clearly shaped for, you know, Asia to some degree, some trade-offs in that area, um, but but not 
as narrowly focused as just becoming a missile force that's protecting protected by you know eight eight infantry battalions per division. Uh, still a lot of ground fighting capability, uh, but it's again not not for the maybe not for the three block war uh, as much as uh, involving itself in in deterring great power aggression. I think which re requires greater responsiveness, more agility, greater mobility, greater standoff um, than we currently have. Yeah, Mark, go ahead. Me, yeah, let me let me raise a, a different question, which is about this um, uh, littoral regiment that the Marine Corps has hypothesized, that the restructuring hypothesizes, and you know the notion, I mean, of a littoral capability. I think it's consistent with uh, the restructuring, and I would say, you know, because a conflict with China is a possibility and a very dangerous one. You know, having that capability makes uh, some sense. The odd thing of it is why the Marine Corps feels it needs to create this new structure. I, I think if the MAGTAF uh, were more flexible, then it would include the ability to create a, a, a logistics regiment and not have to create a, a, a special organization. I think the problem with Marine Corps thinking about MAGTAFs is that it's in the, you know, the special purpose MAGTAF and then there's the the MU, the MEB, the MEF, and although there are little variations in each one of those, there aren't the great variations that you would need for a littoral regiment, you know, which might have uh, a, you know, a, a missile battalion protected by an infantry company and maybe a UAV aviation element. Uh, maybe the aviation element would just be uh, air defense. Uh, and in theory, that would fit you know, a MAGTAF construct, but the Marine Corps, I think that that's too radical for uh, the Marine Corps. And let, me, let me pass that one to, to Frank because he does a lot of MAGTAFery. I'm, I'm not uh, as conversant on the details on the regiment, but I see it as the trade-off between the specialization and training and readiness trade-offs. Instead of trying to be ready for all things, every regiment trying to be amphibious, being ground-oriented and being... Um, absorbing and operating with these capabilities. I see this as a, as the halfway station into having some focus in a regiment on using those capabilities. Uh, people will obviously go to school and go to exercises and become familiar with this over time uh, in Marine Corps doctrine and its uh, tactics and in its exercises. But I see this organization as a useful way of uh, creating an immediate uh, readiness uh, and capability uh, gap closure uh, so these capabilities can be focused, can be applied, can be trained, can be organized in, in the near to mid-range rather than over a 10-year period. So uh, it, I think it's that trade-off between specialization and general purpose that that is inherent to the air ground team for, for many scenarios. I just had a, a comment amongst many questions to come. It's been great. A uh, comment was, is this too radical for the Marine Corps or too radical for old Marines? <laughs> so, um, you know, <laughs> somebody making a comment there. Well, uh, let me, let me, let me respond been, to that I, as, as an old old Marine, because I mean, you get this, you know, that, that, that the dinosaurs, you know, don't understand modern warfare and they're reluctant to change. My response is, we've seen a lot of history and we've seen concepts come and go. And, you know, the same thing keeps happening. You know, the, 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 the nation keeps fighting wars that it did not expect to fight. And I expect that to continue. Yeah, well, that's why I really want to emphasize the background that you all have had. You know, I mean, all the budget battles, the concept development, vision documents uh, across the board. You know, this is not new stuff in, in that sense, right? It's always continually reassessing the security environment 
what your competitors have, how do you remain relevant as a service, uh, which I think is a very important uh, conversation. And we only have a few minutes left here, so I'm gonna just throw out some questions or comments that have come in um, talking about, is this uh, effort by the Marine Corps too self-focused? Is it not coordinated with the joint force? Is it overly dependent on what the Navy is able or willing to do, right? I mean, if you're in a maritime environment, and the Navy's dragging its heels or doesn't have the right kind of ships or whatever that might be, is this off or not anyway? Or because of all those challenges, if you're always waiting on everybody to catch up to you, then nothing ever changes, right? So is there a necessary risk that General Berger is taking to just push out there, develop new capabilities, show that they can be done, and hopefully everybody else catches up? I mean, you know, there's not a perfect answer either way. Uh, are enlisted Marines up to the task? You know, this is a question from a young midshipman out at the Naval Academy, right? Uh, I think our Marines have shown themselves to be extraordinarily adaptable because they have to make it work on the ground. But it does beg the question, you know, new technologies, new capabilities, training environments. Uh, we're going to call on our uh, troops to do a lot, our young Marines to do a lot. And do you think they're up to the task? Again, collaboration with the Joint Force. Um, does this new construct mean that maneuver warfare is out? And in other words, you know, you you push these units out into this archipelagic sort of defensive line uh, with some bite and long-range fires, but aren't they then inherently static? So how does this relate to every Marine's a rifleman? Uh, maneuver is really what it's all about, uh, taking the battle to the enemy, and yet you've got these small packets of Marines sitting on a toll someplace. Uh, you know, how does that relate to the culture? And then finally, um, I believe it was Paul Giara said, uh, hey, we haven't mentioned Guadalcanal. And uh, any conversation about naval warfare and islands, you just got to bring that thing up. So um, we still have more coming in, but I want, want you guys to take a couple, three minutes to really address this stuff. Then we're going to have to wrap up with a hard stop at 11. So sure. Let me, let, me, let me talk about two things. I mean, the first one is about the Navy. And of course, the Navy's force structure assessment process has stalemated. I, I don't think they're going to get anything out before the next administration. So it's not clear how the Navy would support this. And of course, you know, naval support is critical because the Marine Corps proposes sending out there these uh, bubbles of capability, and the Navy's going to have to support them one way or the other. Uh, and if the Navy doesn't build the structure and the doctrine to do that, what you're going to do is you're going to have a bunch of wake islands out there, each one of them fighting valiantly until they're wiped out. Uh, the uh, uh, In terms of the uh, enlisted, I think that's a great question. Uh, uh, it puts a lot of pressure on uh, enlisted troops, and I, uh, the Marine Corps talks about uh, changing the way it, it trains people and recruiting people differently. I haven't seen any plans on how they would uh, do that, but that makes uh, some sense. The Commandant has been emphatic. He's not going to drop standards, and he has said that, and I think that's a, uh, I think that's very important. I think there's a lot of pressure on the services to redefine what military service is, you know, have you know, a bunch of blue-haired Marines who are cyber cyber warriors, uh, and the Commandant has uh, rejected that, and I think uh, rightly so. Over to Frank. Yeah, well, again, good good wrap-ups. Uh, you would say that most of what we're discussing and the changes that have been approved and thought about are parts of debates that go back to 04 and 05. This is the 15th or the 16th year of, of some of these. Uh, the vision has been growing. The consensus has been growing. Uh, General, General Neller did start some changes 
uh, particularly in the information warfare and electronic warfare and signature management world that got us into some of the non-kinetic capabilities that are relevant. So again, to me, this is not risky as much as it's long overdue and we're taking some risk in that case. I did want to address the SOCOM issue. Um, I, I don't know if speaking for Mark, you know, I, I'd be willing to make less of a commitment for the Marine Corps inside the SOCOM area. I don't think we were well received. I think that uh, has been well done uh, by the Marines that have participated in that, but I'd rather have the qualitative aspect of that and perhaps some other uh, things that are external to the Marine Corps back inside the Marine Corps and continue the thrust that uh, the Commandant has set up. You know, we're not lowering standards. We're actually, the Commandant's talking about raising standards, particularly in the ground forces in a more complex uh, operational environment that will have some close in aspects, uh, but again, more risk for the infantry. So the, the quality of the troops, the tactical decision-making by sergeants needs to be enhanced. And that's that's part of the program that I, that I agree with. I think that is consistent with the culture. Um, I do think that if we understand maneuver warfare uh, as articulated is across the spectrum of conflict, it's not just high end and maneuver is not just something about ground mobility. It's about the MAGTAF's mobility operationally and its employment in a strategic context. And I think particularly in the electronic, in the signature management and the information warfare aspects from air and ground, that we are expanding our uh, space for maneuver uh, against our opponents, even in scenarios that are, are not you know, Asia-centric. Uh, I do, again, final concern is if we get too focused on the missile airing thing, uh, we, we do have a force generation challenge in maintaining our forward presence out in the forward edges of uh, with our allies and our uh, partners. And if we reduce the ground force you know, too much, uh, we, we will not be as present. And uh, some of the cuts, I think we'll have a personnel tempo challenge that have to be very carefully managed. Uh, if we're gonna be forward, if we're gonna maintain the MUSE cycle, if we're gonna stay forward present in Asia, and if we're going to be leaning in on uh, great power competitors on the Eurasia landmass, where I still think the littoral aspects of the Marine Corps have a lot of uh, utility in creating dilemmas for our opponents. Uh, but again, I applaud the Commandant and Marine Corps for kind of leaning in and just get the Navy and the Joint Staff to uh, catch up to the Commandant. There we go. Hey, I'm gonna have to cut this off. We got literally like 90 seconds left. Um, I would say that um, uh, I do have my uh, Marine Corps Special Operations coffee mug, so I'm still a fan of those guys, even though I've uh, talked about uh, needing to wrap some things up. I would ask our uh, attendees to check out the writings of Mark and Frank, uh, those provided in the uh, comments list. Uh, if you have any other questions, please do contact us and uh, we'll work that in the background and get back to you on this. Uh, again, it's been a great panel. I can't thank uh, you, Mark and, uh, and Frank, uh, for taking time out of your day, sharing your libraries with us and uh, these comments about uh, where the direction Marine Corps is going. Again, I'm a big fan. And I think if we waited for the joint force to come up with a concept and everybody else to get their act together, we would never get anything done. And so sometimes you just have to stick out there as a salient and, uh, and see what you can do. And, and I think the, the general, uh, General Berger, uh, has got some great work going on behind the scenes, trying to assess the implications of a modern environment. And uh, he's saying the Marine Corps is going to grapple with this thing. So uh, anyway, uh, appreciate you uh, participating. Appreciate all of our attendees. We had an extraordinary number of questions. And again, anything else that you have uh, questions for our panelists, uh, send the uh, notes to me via our uh, website here, and we'll make sure we get the responses to you. So 
again, thanks a lot and appreciate it. And uh, we'll try to do something like this here again in the near future. Thank you, Dakota. Thank you to the audience. Thanks.